You're listening to Her Body IOFM with your hosts, Alex Navarro and Andrea Jangle, the women's source for optimal health and lifelong performance. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Her Body, brought to you by Body.io FM. I'm your host, Alex Navarro, and we are back for another episode with Carrie Thwett. And today, we're going to be talking more specifically, uh, you actually met her not too long ago, um, her story and her amazing fat loss story and success um, and sort of how the process of how she went about going through it and successes and failures, trials and errors. And today we're going to be talking more specifically about eating disorders and body dysmorphia because it was a reoccurring theme and perhaps still is in your success. So welcome back, Carrie. Thank you, Alex. This is great to be able to do this a second time. (laughs) And this time, you know, we'll get uh, we're going to talk about some more personal things this time. And mm-hmm. some of this is a little hard to talk about. So I hope you bear with me on that. Of course, of course. And if at any point you need to just take a little break, take a moment, take a deep breath, <laughs> just let me know. Um, but I okay. think it's a really important topic to touch upon considering who a lot of our audience is, um, you know, not just only being women, because it tends to be a, a very big problem. Uh, amongst women, you know, just not seeing what others see in ourselves, um, having a, uh, a a bad body image, and not seeing yourself for who you are, you know, and, and obviously, mm-hmm. we might have an aesthetic goal, but it's important to know who you are internally, what what else you have to offer besides, you know, looking good in a pair of jeans. And while that can still be a great goal, it's important to keep all of these other things in mind through the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is uh, also relevant, I think, presently in our society today because there's so much talk about but, – uh, What feeling good about yourself, Mm -hmm. having a good self image, having good self esteem. Well, I'm here to tell you, I had great self esteem. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I that in itself may be very different from what some of our listeners feel because I I know that there are many people that struggle with very low self esteem, uh, self esteem, and bad body image. But ultimately, the negative effects are similar, even if your self-esteem and body image is too good. Mm-hmm. So, that's true. you know, that's, that's interesting. True. Yeah. And, yeah. And just just on that note, I would like to say that when we do, when we work with clients, uh, the body IO coaches, you know, part of, we have a very thorough assessment that clients run through. And one of the things we ask is what the top three stressors are. Because it's important for us to know what's going on in their lives, what kind of stress they're dealing with, and if it's something that we can help them manage. And more often than not, one of the top three stressors, especially amongst women, is body image. It's how Mm. they feel they look. So if that is a stressor, whether they, you know, and it's hard to say whether that's appropriate or not, because I might see a client and think they look great, but they don't think that. And that's causing Mm -hmm. them enough stress to where it could be 
a limiting factor to their overall success. Absolutely. That your body doesn't know if you're annoyed by what you see in the mirror or if you're running from a saber-toothed tiger. It's a stress right. response and it has mm-hmm. negative consequences. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And one thing I just realized too is is I I reintroduced you, but for those of you who didn't listen to the first episode with Carrie uh, where she talks about her whole story. You know, Carrie lost 160 pounds over. Let's a, say 100 and, uh, 160, more? 65. Okay. I like that. I <laughs> Every pound counts. <laughs> it does. It does. It, it was all hard work. So. Okay, so I just wanted to throw that back out there because I think it's very important for people to realize is, you know, a substantial Mm -hmm. amount of weight, not only that that you put on at one point or another, and today we're going to talk more specifically about how that happened uh, through Mm -hmm. eating, your eating patterns and behavior, but also how you lost it because it's just Mm -hmm. as important and the process that you went through for that to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Let me start by telling you a story of when I was in elementary school. At that point, I had not considered one person necessarily looking different from another. I saw that people had different body types, but uh, I didn't really process it very much. I was just a kid going through my life. But one of my friends mentioned that she didn't, uh, like in the summer in Texas, it's hot. And so they would let us wear shorts to school. She said, I don't like, I don't know, we're we're nine years old. She said, I don't like sitting in my desk because when I sit down, the fat on my legs spreads out and it makes my legs look fat and I don't like that. I thought, wow, that's weird. That's weird. You know, well, but then the thing is, is then I looked and I was like, oh yeah, mine do that too. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't care. (laughs) which I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but it was my first, it was my first uh, exposure to fat shaming, you know, Mm -hmm. or somebody not being comfortable with their own body. And I didn't feel uncomfortable in my body. Actually, I never have, but (laughs) that's because I couldn't, I don't see in the mirror what is really there. Okay, so I've heard about this before, but usually when you hear about it, you hear about it with anorexics and sometimes bulimics, Mm -hmm. that people are very thin and look very good, but they see a fat person in the mirror and they pick it apart. And, you know, they've actually realized that these people are not seeing an accurate image. Mm -hmm. And when I, I... first learned about that back when I was working on my PhD and how the brain can play tricks on what you see. And I was learning about dyslexia and and ways that the miscommunication that happens. And it dawned on me, I have that, but I have it the opposite. I look in the mirror and I don't see a fat person. I don't see an accurate image coming back at me. And that was really, really weird. So it, it kind of made sense to me why all of these years I had not been able to become motivated to look different. Um, I was also, I guess, blessed in a way. I didn't, 
I, I surrounded myself by wonderful friends that didn't make fun of me and, you know, people that didn't point out my, my weight problem, you know, so that was great. But I also didn't have anybody to actually say, hmm, did you know you don't look so good? Right. Because my brain didn't tell me that I did not look so good. Mm-hmm. And I still have that problem today. Um, so I actually want to talk about that more in, in a little bit. But the first I want to go back, if it makes sense to you, and talk about my behave, my eating behaviors. Yeah, how it started, because so, it didn't just yeah, yeah, come yeah. out of nowhere. And yeah, you, know, yeah. you had kind of mentioned in, in our first first episode how you know you were very strategic about about your eating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. sort of, sort of in, planned out and you know order yeah, of foods school, that you ate I mean this was it, it's yeah. almost like it was a job it got more and more structured and complex as I became more of a scientist quite honestly <laughs> uh, so in high school in high school it was a little less structured but I would sneak food. So I would eat lunch uh, that my mom prepared and I would eat lunch with my friends. But then there was always a little spare time left over. Well, while they were playing and I don't know, making out with their boyfriends and whatever, I would I would go back across the street to the convenience store and I would stock up on candy and chips and all sorts of things and put it in my big purse and I would take it home with me. My mom would give me an after-school snack, so I'd eat my after-school snack, but then I would go to my room and I would eat all of that food that I bought before dinner. Then I'd eat dinner. And then sometimes I would buy double the amounts of food so that I could have it at night before I went to bed. And so in high school, that was basically the pattern. Uh, my sneaking food, sneaking, buying it, and then eating it at night in my room by myself. That was somewhat organized, you know, because I right. had to go to the store and get it and tell good lies to make that happen. Right. You, I mean, it was but, definitely, you know, a plan in place when you were doing this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just like mindless eating. You oh, knew yeah, what you were doing. Definitely. I knew exactly what I was mm-hmm. doing and I knew exactly what I was getting. I only bought things that were going to give me maximum a maximum hit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't just go and buy anything. There were very specific things that I would buy and they weren't the same all the time. Um, so those changed as well. In college, in college was a little bit more of a free for all because I, for the first time I had access to anything and everything. So it was almost like just a trial. Like, oh, I've never had this before. I'm going to try this. Gotcha. Oh, I've never had that before. I'm going to try that. And so college was a bit of a little bit more um, a free-for-all. Still executed, though, because it had to be done when I wasn't busy. And I was always busy. So right. it still you had to be executed. doing a lot in college. You were not mm-hmm. only you know mm-hmm. going to school, but you were playing sports. You were what, in the marching band. You were doing a lot. Yep. Which yeah, again, I, and I think I, I think I had mentioned in the previous podcast. Like, thank goodness that you were that active because hadn't mm-hmm. you been that active, eating the way that you were, I mean, you could have been far, way farther down the line weight wise. Because at this point, yeah, how much, sure. how much were you weighing in on around college? College, I went uh, my freshman year. I was at two ten, and I graduated college at two eighty. 
So it's a big you know, jump. Yeah, pretty heavy, pretty heavy mm-hmm. during that time. Yep. Uh, one thing, though, that college did allow me to do is uh, I call it uh, pair my eating with others. And so this gave me a larger uh, circle of friends where I could pick specific people to go to certain restaurants with so that I could eat certain foods with them that I know they liked. And I would change the people out. So no one person knew how much food I was eating. So this is I very strategic have, planning. Yeah. So I might have four hours one evening free and I would plan two hours with one person to go eat at one restaurant. Then I'd be like, oh yeah, I got to go do my homework. Okay. Yeah. Bye. And then I would have another person planned to go to a different restaurant so I could keep eating. Mm. Mm. It's like you're like a serial dater. Where you like date different people because each each you know person provides something else for you that you feel like you need. <laughs> Let's not tell people I'm a serial dater. I'm trying to <laughs> date right now. <laughs> it's more am, of a comparison. It was more of a comparison. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. But yeah, I, I was. Um, also, I couldn't. Even though I knew I was eating a lot. I didn't exactly know how much I was eating. And this is kind of a, a kind of a weird kind of stupid thing to say, to say that I didn't know I was eating so much, but I would watch the people that I would eat with and I would see how much they would eat and I would match that to them. Mm. And so then when I was on my own at home or something and I was eating, I would think, okay, I saw my friend eat this much food. That must not be too much food. So I'm going to eat that much food Mm. at home by myself. So what was actually happening is, see, I don't have an off switch. I don't have a signal that tells me that I'm hungry. Or you're full, right? Oh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't have a switch to tell me that I'm full. Even today, I don't. Mm. And so I was actually observing others' quantity of food and then matching myself to them, not thinking this person is having a special occasion. They're going out to eat. Right. This is not what they eat at home. Right. See, I didn't process that. I just thought they ate that much all the time. Mm -hmm. So it was okay for me to do so too. Right. And probably at that point, you're you're telling yourself what you might want to hear as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, both. I would Mm -hmm. say that's true. And then not having a, an off switch um, mm-hmm. just compounded the disaster that ensued. So that was college. Those are the basic behaviors. Oh, but let me tell you, I, you know, as far as what I could consume in a day, I would get up early. Okay. I had cl- eight o'clock, eight, eight a.m. classes. Mm-hmm. Most people drag in. Well, I would get up extra early, but so I could eat breakfast and I'd go by McDonald's and I'd get three hash browns with butter and two sausage, egg and cheese biscuits. And I'd get orange juice. And then while I was eating that, I'd drive down the street and stop at Burger King and get the French toast sticks and the hash brown bites with maple syrup. Wow. Eat all of that on my way to class. That's probably, I mean, calorie-wise, the the amount that uh, the average person might eat in in a day. Yeah. If not more already, and you're eating it before 8 o'clock. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then lunch would happen. Um, And so 
actually marching band practice was right in the middle of the day. So I would usually leave my class right before that early so I could go eat. And I would eat something like mashed potatoes and grilled cheese sandwiches and ice cream. Then I'd go to marching band practice. But then after marching band, all us band geeks would try to schedule our classes that so they were all morning classes so we could basically party with each other all afternoon long. (laughs) (laughs) And so the afternoon would be free and I would go have then my second lunch with my after band practice Hmm. and we'd go to Chili's and I would always get their French fries with their honey mustard sauce and we would get chips and salsa and Coke. And so I would eat a third time in the day before two o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I'd have something in the afternoon. Um, Something that was common was Taco Villa. That's a Mexican food restaurant that's only in like West Texas. Mm -hmm. And I would get six tacos and a choco taco dessert, stuff that in for dinner. I'd have fried cheese sticks, a hamburger, onion rings, and then usually go and get a couple of pints of Baskin Robbins ice cream. And that you, was a typical day. And and at no point during this this food frenzy did you feel full. No. It's very interesting. Mm-mm. Did you ever get sick from eating that much? I mean, like, you know, like it be, can become kind of painful when you, you stuff yourself too much and, and people get, you know, like on Thanksgiving, people get sleepy and they get uncomfortable because their stomach's so full. But this is probably you, you were so used to it that that just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, I'd never felt um I never felt full. It's I never felt sick. Now sometimes I would get dizzy. Mm. There were times that I would get heart palpitations and my heart would race. And actually that would slow me down because it scared me. Right. I thought, I don't know what's happening here. I think I'm just gonna go to bed. You know, right, right, right. But you didn't necessarily correlate that with the fact that you had just ate six tacos. No, I didn't because it didn't happen every time. But uh, that is something that would happen. And it was a result of what I was eating. Um, 300 pounds. Soon after I graduated college, I was married. I weighed 300 pounds. And the feeding continued, you know, similar breakfast. Um, I was teaching high school. So before I would go to teach, I would stop by McDonald's and do the kind of the same McDonald's breakfast we talked about earlier. I would eat in the cafeteria. Oh, this is so sad. This is so sad for the state of our cafeterias. But I would eat in the cafeteria because it was more delicious and more gooey and fatty and carby then I could make it home. And so <laughs> it's true. Wow. Yeah. So I was eating lasagna and garlic bread and enchiladas for lunch. Um, actually, sometimes uh, a lot of the teachers would eat together and I would go and I would get a plate of food. I would go to the teacher's lounge and eat it. And then I would excuse myself to say, I've got to prep for my next class. And what I really did was went back to the cafeteria for the second group of students that were in there. And I would get a second plate of food and I would take it back to my classroom 
and eat it and in the closet in case somebody came in. I, I was a biology teacher, and so we had like a, a storage room. And so I'd eat it in there so that people wouldn't see me eating it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, after school, always Reese's cups in the afternoon, ice cream in the afternoon. And I would haul that in pretty fast because my husband would get home from work around four o'clock. And so I had to get a lot of food in before he came home. Right now, go ahead. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, I'm almost picturing in my head, sort of the, the hiding of things and you know you're looking at your watch thinking like okay I only have x amount of time before mm-hmm. you know I'm going to be home or he's going to be home and I have to I, I want to be able to get in as much food as possible so I'm almost thinking about mm-hmm. like the process that must be going through your mind at the time when you're choosing foods to eat like you want to choose something that's going to be eaten efficiently and quickly and maybe there there isn't as much evidence left behind that you exactly. have exactly that's why the ca- that's what that's why the, the candy bars worked really well uh-huh and so uh, you could get a, I could get a big hit from those candy bars, uh, Reese's cups, especially. That was my thing um, without a lot of evidence, with, without a lot of chewing, <laughs> you know, get, get all that down pretty fast. Very calorie um, dense. But, yeah. But my, my husband was, he was very, very fit. And he had a he had a lot of muscle and he was able to eat a lot and because he needed it. He burned it. His metabolism just used that food and he enjoyed eating very much. And so I really didn't I still got to eat when he was around because we usually went out to eat every night and we had amazing Mexican food. We had amazing chicken fried steak. And so I would eat also exactly what he ate Mm -hmm. and he didn't necessarily think anything about it because that's the food he was eating and he looked fine so you know he didn't wasn't that concerned about me what was really tough though is the things well there were other things that I would actually hide from him and that would be kind of like what I did when I was in high school with my parents and I would buy a lot of food during the day and we had a big house so there's plenty of extra closets I could hide food in And I would hide food away in the closets and I would get up in the middle of the night. I mean, you go to bed with your husband, you kiss them goodnight, you know, you lay down and then you lay there. I would lay there and I would wait till I could hear him breathing. So he was asleep Mm -hmm. and I would get up and go to the other side of the house and I would eat all the food that I had bought. And eat it quickly because, oh, my gosh, what if he woke up? But then there was trash. And so there were many times in the middle of the night that I would sneak out, go across our yard into the alley, dump the trash in the dumpster and come back in the house and then get back in bed and go to sleep. You got to hide the evidence. Got to hide the evidence. And how many years did that go on for? I was married four years, and okay. it went on the entire time I was married. Well, I mean, you had practice early on in terms of gathering the food and hiding it, so I imagine you just got better and better at it over the years. And Oh, oh certainly. And mm-hmm. the lies, you know, uh, so he would say you're working out every 
every day. I see you working out. You know, I see what you're eating. You're eating what I'm eating. Mm-hmm. Why are you continuing to gain weight? You know, and he wasn't mean about it at all. But he would bring it to my attention sometimes. And so I was a good liar. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I didn't have any, ex- I didn't have any excuses. Right, so, right. but I was getting, getting better and better. But it really, really got, uh, went off the charts when I, I divorced and went to get my master's degree. And this is when the the real scientist came out, the one who was very, very organized. And I was, you know, living that in the lab and um, executing all the time. I would make sure that all my homework, all my research, everything was done by middle of the day on Friday, because from Friday afternoon to Sunday night was eat time. Wow. So this is back when we had, you had to go to Blockbuster to rent your VHS movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would think, okay, so uh, this is how many movies I can watch uh, between, you know, five uh, on Friday and nine o'clock on Sunday. And I only need to sleep about four hours each night. So this is how many movies I can watch. And so how much food can I eat during that time? And I would begin to plan it and I would go to multiple grocery stores to buy very specific foods. Um, I would plan that the eating wouldn't, that, that I would never run out of food. So once I started eating, I would plan to not run out of food until a very certain time where I would stop and then I would leave and I would go to a certain restaurant. Um, mm. Sometimes it was uh, the Chinese buffet and there was Baskin Robbins ice cream. There was the Mexican food. There was, uh, what are some other go-to places? Those are the main ones. But I knew what time I wanted to hit the restaurant and I would always get it to go. I wouldn't eat there. I would get it to go and I would always order three plates of food. And so I would say, I would like the cheese enchiladas with beans and rice. Mm -hmm. And then I would also order uh, the fajitas with extra guacamole. And then I would also order the chili rellenos and the chalupas with extra refried beans and corn tortillas and flour tortillas on the side. And so then they would pack it up in the big bag and they would say, would you like silverware? Yes, Mm -hmm. three, please. (laughs) Well, you've got to well, hide it be- because they're not going to believe that, you know, little old you's going to yeah. put all that down. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, so it's, a, it's an impressive food. amount of food. And, and that's I think that's a comment I've made on, on some food logs over the years that that's oh, impressive. Yeah, you, you know, when I – okay, so let's actually talk about the food logs. This is something that I did where I was very, very honest with myself. I started tracking my food – back when I was teaching high school and was married, I got this. They didn't have online tracking back then, Well, you could do it on the computer, but you had to buy the software. So I bought the software. It cost me a thousand dollars and it was called nutritionist pro. And the reason I started tracking is because a doctor told me it was the last time I was ever going to see him because he was moving to Dallas and moving his practice. 
And he said, Carrie, I want to tell you about some research that I read. And he said, there was a study done and they took overweight people and they had a group of overweight people write down in a food diary everything that they ate, what time they ate it and how much it was. And then they they did that with two different groups of people. But with one of the groups of people, they had a shadow person follow them all day long. And Mm. the shadow person also wrote down everything that that overweight person ate. And he said, Carrie, at the end, they discovered that the people, that, that all of the overweight people wrote down this basically the same amount of food, but they wrote different foods down and different amounts down than the shadow person. The overweight people mm. weren't necessarily seeing not just how much they were eating, but they actually left things off the list. And he he said the researchers don't know why that is. And he said they don't know if it's that the people are consciously cheating or if they're not, they're doing it without consciousness. Right, like not realizing that the butter that they're putting on the bread, like they're counting the bread, but they're not like, well, the butter's a condiment, maybe. Or maybe or maybe just straight up not remembering the butter. That's true. You know, you know, well, how does your brain process? It's just a, right. And so, I mean, at that point, that's mindless eating. It is. It is. And I, he said, I feel comfortable sharing this with you, that you're going to take it and use it in your best interest. Mm-hmm. Well, that was back in 1992. And it is valuable for me today. And so I have always thought, I wonder if I really know what I'm eating. So I started tracking what I was eating back when I was married and would track it religiously, but not, and and just objectively, just so that I would have data down, just because I like to gather data. Sometimes I would use it to eat less. Sometimes I wouldn't, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. I didn't care, but that's when I got in the process of tracking every bite of food. I did that all through the time that I was working on my master's degree, even when I was doing those weekend binges. Wow. Oh, and and let me tell you, I ate every moment during those two and a half days. And the only time I didn't is if, you know, my mom and dad would come up and we'd go to a football game or something. Mm -hmm. Otherwise I was eating. I would track that food and I was hitting thousands and thousands of calories, like 10,000 calories. I'm sure. I was hitting, I was hitting crazy. I'm sure at some point the software was thinking, this is wrong. Error, (laughs) error, error. (laughs) There's no way you could be eating this much food. They're like, how many people are you tracking for? (laughs) Exactly. It must be six people she's putting into this one profile. But, but, you know, we go back now to the body dysmorphic disorder. I was 300 pounds and I could not see it. Mm-hmm. I would stand side by side with a friend in a mirror or see our reflection in a window. And I did not perceive myself as looking different from them. Mm-hmm. Weird. So, so weird. So then I guess, you know, you know, this 
well, if you listen to the previous podcast, the story of how I had a revelation and decided I did want to lose weight mm-hmm. uh, when I was working on my PhD because of wanting to be the cool aunt and keep up with my nephews. And so I had already put in place this system of tracking all my food. So at this time, I, I did now kind of let the data tell me something and, mm-hmm. and guide me in one direction or another, which is why I was able to do the low calorie diets, you know, the right. 500 calorie a day diet. <laughs> and that's, a, that's, that's why such I was a able- significant jump from your 10, you know, potentially mm-hmm. 10,000 mm-hmm. calorie days down to 500. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, Sometimes it wasn't that difficult, although I couldn't do it for very long. But it dawned on me one day, I wonder if 500 calories is too small. Maybe I should alter that. I'll do 800 on one day, 1,000 on one day, 1,200 on one day, Mm -hmm. and then alternate through that cycle. Like that was very much Mm -hmm. different. But, you know, I I did try that. We'll see what would happen. But I did already have the data collection and data management in place, which allowed me to start to track that. Something else that I learned from tracking is I just simply learned amounts of food. Like, right. how? what does four ounces of steak look like? Well, I knew. And it, when I decided at some point to actually use that to my advantage, I didn't have to learn it because I already right. knew it. I knew right, what it right. looked like. I knew what I knew what 12 ounces of steak looked like and I knew what 4 ounces of steak looked like and I was able to make a choice once and I decided to do And that's a very valuable so. tool. Very valuable mm-hmm. tool. And that's mm-hmm. something, you know, of, I, which is what I hope uh, clients eventually are able to do, just eyeball things. The tracking is very useful at the beginning once you get that sense of, you know, mm-hmm. quantity versus visually what that looks like so that when they are out to eat, they don't have to be trying to figure it out in their head. They can look at something and be like, okay, that's how much I should eat based mm-hmm. off of how it looks. Exactly. And this is something we have to really as coaches pay attention to with our clients, because some clients don't view the data objectively. They view the food data subjectively. So while we want them to track at some point for the purpose of learning what amount of food is appropriate for me to eat, we also have to watch them to make sure that they are still using that data objectively and not letting it make them feel bad or define who they are, or put them in a tailspin where they go off and eat crazy amounts of food because, oh, I was 200 calories over today. I suck. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So going back onto the data and and how helpful it was for you engaging things, you know, you also used other tools for tracking purposes to collect data, uh, like the DEXA. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. The DEXA is so my friend. I um, this uh, The first time I heard about it was when uh, I read through Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Body, and he talked about going and having these DEXA scans. And what they do, they look at your bone mineral density, they look at your lean body mass, your fat mass, they tell you how much 
what it is percentage wise, how much it weighs and how it's distributed, where it is on your arms, your legs, your trunk, whether it's your in your visceral fat around your organs or whether it's subcutaneous, which is the pinchy fat Mm -hmm. in your tummy. And I thought, this is cool, you know, because at that, by that time I had changed to where I wanted to lose fat and wanted to gain muscle Mm -hmm. because I had ever since I was little, I had read muscle and fitness and I loved muscle. I loved the way it looked on men. I loved the way it looked on women. And Mm -hmm. I wanted some of that. And so I realized that the DEXA was a way for me to know how much muscle I had when otherwise all I could do was look in the mirror and we already established the mirror lies to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, okay, I got to do this. So I found that the athletic department in Stanford had a DEXA machine and would let uh, just regular folk use it for a small fee. Drove out to Stanford, laid down on this machine for three minutes and came back with the biggest bunch of data coolest data I'd never been able to collect in my life. And um, I knew, I knew then, I'm like, I know how much of me is fat, how much of me is muscle. And now I don't have to rely on the stupid scale. Right. Because at that time, I had lost enough weight or that, and I was working out hard enough that I was gaining enough muscle that the scale sometimes wouldn't budge. Right. But I thought my clothes are feeling a little different. I wish I could observe this better in some way. Mm-hmm. And the DEXA let me do that. Right. I was like, I have a goal now. I have a, I have a machine that will give me data that is not going to lie to me like the scale lies to us. Right. And then I found a place. It was actually a, um, a place that did osteoporosis testing. And it so I went to there down in Redwood City in southern uh, south of San Francisco and found that she could do it at a little bit cheaper price and it was a little bit closer to me. So I would have it done every three months or so. And that would really let me know where's the fat, where's the muscle, how do I want to change my training, how do I want to change my diet, what do I want to tweak. It was very valuable. That was probably the, the, the most helpful. I mean, you you always brought a lot of data, you know, with the food logs. And we had like every piece of the puzzle to work from. So we always had a very clear picture of what we were dealing with at any given point throughout the process. And I think that that mm-hmm. was invaluable. I mean, without that one critical piece, it would have been very easy for for both of us to get frustrated. Like, nothing's happening. You get on the scale, nothing's happening. Well, because it's Mm -hmm. a terrible system for tracking. Like, yes, it has its purpose and it can be helpful and insightful sometimes. But more often Mm -hmm. than not, it's not giving you valuable information that Mm -hmm. the DEXA Mm -hmm. gave us everything we needed to know. Yeah, until the scale moves eight or 10 pounds, and gosh, for men, it's, it's even worse, really, because they can retain so much water overnight. Mm-hmm. But until the scale has a huge move, you almost can't count it as a Progress. loss or a gain. Right. A loss, I, or yeah, a loss or a 
gain, either one. And then when it's not moving, that's meaningless also. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, the, the DEXA was great. And it is actually quite affordable now. You can go once a quarter mm-hmm. and it costs $60, $70. And that is, that's so valuable. And then not and- even worry about the scale in between. Right. And I think that most uh, colleges, universities have that available. So, you know, it might not hurt for for whatever area you're in to just poke around. It might be a little bit of a drive for some people, but it could be very, very worth it in the end to mm-hmm. have, that, have are, that tool. There are, I think, six locations for a company called DexaFit, and the, they're scattered around the U.S. There is a new mobile DEXA company that is out there. I can't remember their name, though. I apologize to them for not remembering their name. But okay. they if, went if you do remember, to, we'll just put it in the show notes. Then. Yeah, they go into, uh, they'll go to gyms and um, they'll test people's body fat and muscle percentages. And, but yes, right now here where I am living now, I don't have the luxury of having a DEXA uh, near me, or at least not that I know of. I bet you the university here has one, and I just haven't looked it up yet, mm-hmm. uh, but I need to. But let me, even today, okay, this is why I still need the DEXA today, is even though I was healed, I was healed from arthritis, I was healed of depression, you know, my diet changes and weight loss got rid of so many of these uh, chronic illnesses that I had. Mm-hmm. It did not fix my body dysmorphic disorder. It did not fix the fact that I don't have an off switch and I can still eat and eat and eat. And this was a problem for me when I first started carb night, because as it's laid out, you're not counting calories. You're not really counting macros on your ultra low carb days or your carb nights. Right. You, what happens to most people is that the body begins to get fueled the way it's supposed to and their natural leptin and ghrelin signals kick in mm-hmm. and they they become satiated appropriately and hungry appropriately and then they don't overeat that actually didn't happen for me and i could people say oh you can't just binge on steak i can binge on steak and broccoli and mm-hmm. eat it and eat it until my eyes are green. Yep. And I've seen so, the food logs to prove it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then so then I could undo on a carb night all the good work from the ultra low carb days. But I could also screw up the ultra low carb days significantly as well. And so I never I, I couldn't get into a calorie deficit just eating to satiety because it really never happened. So this is why I need to to do the data. This is why I need to enter the data into the food logs. And I still don't see the, the person that I see in the mirror today is the same person I saw in the mirror 20 years ago at 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to the DEXA that it that doesn't lie to me, I've surrounded myself with people that don't lie to me. And not people that'll tell me what I want them to tell me, but people that I trust that have a good eye. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it, not my mom, because my mom thinks I always look good. 
You know, it's got to be other people that mm-hmm. um, understand aesthetics, understand muscle, understand health. And I can say to them, would you please tell me what I look like? Right. Can you please tell me, do I have fat to lose still or not? Mm-hmm. And do I need to put on some muscle? You know, and I try to say, this is how I want to look. This is how I want to be shaped. Am I shaped like that yet? If not, can you help me get there? And I think it's that's weird. a very, it, it's a very smart approach though, because for me, when somebody asks me that, because I do get asked that a lot and it, and I want to be objective and I want to give them a valuable you know, insight um, or advice based off of what I see, but I need to know what they want. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I could look at somebody and say, oh, you know, if I'm thinking about st- contest prep, I know what you need to look like to be on stage. Therefore, I know mm-hmm. what to tell you to do to make that happen. But if you don't want to be on stage, I need to know how you want to look. Mm-hmm. You know, what is your ultimate goal? Do you want to have a little bit of bicep showing when you're not flexing your arm? Like those are important details to keep in mind when thinking about a goal, something to work towards. And while the ultimate goal might be fat loss, you know, having those small goals along the way or those more easily seen goals, like, oh, I want a little peek in my bicep. That's something visual that we can shoot for that you can pay attention to as you go through the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then also having those knowledgeable and trustworthy people around you Sometimes you may see a picture of how you want to look, but you simply are not made that way. And I don't mean, well, yeah, genetics, you know, just different arm length, different torso length. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the knowledgeable person will be able to say, okay, you can't look like that because you're not even structured like that person. Right. But I see what you're going for here. So... Let's look for a different picture with someone more like your body type. Is this more what you're talking about? Right, right. You know, so that's a valuable thing too. And that'll be, that'll continue to be important as you follow continue down your path. And one thing we haven't talked about yet, we didn't talk about it on the first episode, and I think this episode makes sense to talk about. Um, but there was a year was it last year, (laughs) where Mm -hmm. the data was very important. The DEXs were very important because you did not exercise pretty much for almost a whole year. Um, And do you want to explain why? And why I think (laughs) that 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 is such an important piece because there was a period where even with the DEXs and – you know, how you looked, we weren't seeing what we wanted to see because of the because such Because I had a lot of, <laughs> Go because ahead. I had a lot of extra skin. You had a lot of extra <laughs> I had skin. A lo- I had mm-hmm. a lot of extra skin. I don't know uh, within the time frame that we have here, you know, how much detail we can talk about, but just a general big picture was I went from 300 pounds to 138 pounds And it did leave me with a lot of extra skin. And there was a time there that it was quite hard for me to tell what was skin and what was fat. Right. And so that was very strange. And the DEXA was helpful in that. 
because what it did is it told me better how much muscle I had. Right. And and so then by knowing how much muscle I had, I could pinch this skin and kind of like pick it up and see mm-hmm. that, how much does that weigh? You know, and I knew I was picking up skin and not fat because fat doesn't work it, like that. It doesn't right. move it, it like that. It feels different too when you pinch it too, like uh-huh. especially for someone who's done caliper tests before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you so remember how much to... you ended up having on you roughly? Well, Interestingly, after all of the skin was removed, I think it only totaled about eight pounds because skin is not very heavy. Right. So when I did have it all off, got it cut off, it was it was only about eight pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so but let me tell you, it took up a lot of space. that was something as that not much weight came off after that year of of surgeries but uh clothes certainly were different Um, and i think an important thing to mention there because of the dexes and you know we obviously tweaked the diet a lot through this through that year to ensure mm -hmm. that you know you at least maintained but you also didn't lose any muscle mass no, that was, that and was, you amazing. didn't work had, out at all. I didn't, I had no idea what was going to come my way when I started to have those surgeries. I do know one thing is I got down to what I considered to be an appropriate fat percentage. And I mm-hmm. told that plastic surgeon, you're please do you, don't do any lipo. Do not right. suck any fat off of me. If you think that I have more fat to lose, then you know, I'll just put you on retainer. Right. <laughs> and I'm going to go lose it myself. I'm like, well, we're not going to suck this out. He said, oh, my dear. He said, I, no one has ever come to me with this little fat, with this much skin that needs to come off. He mm-hmm. said, you're exactly where you need to be. That's great. And that was very exciting to me. But I had no idea what was going to come my way. I was scared to death. I wasn't going to get to work out. I was going to be extremely sedentary. How was I going to heal? Would the food still be enough? Ah, it was so scary. <laughs> well, well, we just, we kept up the pattern. I would carb deplete or, you know, go ultra low carb up into the surgeries and spike the protein because there were studies I read that there were studies that showed that even in like um, just for any surgery if people protein load for a week before their surgery they have better recovery from their surgery like this is perfect so (laughs) I would um, I would really really up the protein for that week before the surgery which worked out just fine I would have my surgery. Then two days later, I would have a carb night. And I want to use this word clean. Something Mm -hmm. that I did because I just was so nervous about the healing as I thought I am going to pack my world with nutrient dense food. Mm -hmm. So my carb nights became rice, potatoes, sweet potatoes, Lots of things that were going to give me a lots and lots of nutrients. And I did a little bit less of the junk, uh, the treats. Mm-hmm. And I right. still did them, <laughs> but I did a little bit less of them. Yeah. Uh, 
and it paid off. My my healing was so fast. But let me start. Not even just the uh, skin loss surgeries. My first surgery that I had on before I had any of the uh, oh yeah was skin the removal surgeries. My knee. That's right. Well, I'd have had three new knee surgeries prior to that time. I know exactly how the knee surgeries went. But I did this protein loading. I did the nutrient-dense foods. I, that knee healed in three weeks. Mm-hmm. It was nothing. It would take months for my previous knee surgeries to heal. And I was back in the gym going almost full blast three weeks out. It was amazing. No I, scar tissue buildup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the scar tissue didn't build up around those incisions. It was fantastic. So I had that first as like a precursor to know, hey, I I think I can do this. These surgeries are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Again, more data, helpful tools. And even though you didn't, you know, you had the data from the previous surgeries, whether you, you utilized it then or not, you found it helpful at one point or another, something to compare Mm -hmm. it to. And I think Mm -hmm. that just paying attention in general can be so helpful, even though it's not, it might not seem that way in the moment. To have something that you are consciously aware of, that you made a mental note of or wrote it down or tracked it somewhere, to be able to use mm-hmm. that as a reference down the line can be so valuable. And again, it's not something we think, we think it's, you know, it doesn't matter in the moment or it can't be that important of a piece of the puzzle. But man, it really can mm-hmm. be. And, and you're by far proof that <laughs> all of this helps. And, and people assume that if something matters, their doctor's going to tell them about it. Oh yeah, you know no. if it actually if it actually matters what you eat and how you heal, then your doctor's going to tell you, right? Or if it matters, you know what the side if there's going to be side effects of this antibiotic that you're taking after your surgery, your doctor's going to tell you, right? Well, no, not necessarily. Very likely, they don't know. Right. Sadly, they don't know. And Mm -hmm. so don't assume that someone is going to tell you that something is or is not going to work or something's going to be good or bad because they may not know. And then they also may think that, oh, nobody's going to listen to me anyway. They're going to do what they're going to do. So always collect your data. Always think, how do I feel? How do I look? How do I perform? What did I eat today? What did I do today? How could that all be? How could that interplay with each other? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Data on data. It's not just what I'm eating, but knowing, especially for someone who, like you mentioned before, like not you didn't you never felt full before. You didn't have an off switch, but being able to pay attention to other cues that your body is giving you for information mm-hmm. on how, what decision to make down the line is super super helpful. Mm-hmm. For yourself, or especially if you're working with a coach, and like the more information I have to work with to help you, the the better the chances of our success being. And the, also yes. the better it is, the easier it is for me as a coach to be able to ask the right questions too. Because if there's not a lot of information, I don't know what's relevant, what's not. I'm not sure what to ask, uh, what to leave alone. And when somebody brings as much data as you've always brought, like I know exactly what we need to do. There's there's no question marks mm-hmm. on anything. It's more of like, okay, what approach do we want to take this time? Exactly. And then if you don't know the answer in the moment, 
that's okay because now you have mm-hmm. data and you can go figure it out, you exactly. know, and we may figure it out together and I may figure it out before you do and go, mm-hmm. Hey, this is it. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and that's been like the, the, the funnest part throughout this whole process because it's been years now. And like I said, you've been by far the most uh, organized in terms of data collection. And it's it's been a very helpful resource for me in, in learning as well and continuing to learn, especially as we've changed goals so many times. You know, we've reshifted our focus depending based on whatever was going on in your life at the time. And yes, we've always had our ultimate long-term goal but like Mm -hmm. we've mentioned previously like being able to make those shifts when it's appropriate makes I mean it takes the stress off yourself the pressure off Um, it just Mm -hmm. makes being able to manipulate it at any given point that much easier and to not yeah let it overwhelm and consume you and changing the goals is is really important I already mentioned I'm not the same person I was uh, five years ago even but just from, I have a big picture goal, but I also have little goals that I have to meet. And let's say just today, for example, I needed to be on for this podcast. I needed my brain to be clear, you know, as thoughtful as I could be, let's say. (laughs) So maybe my long-term goal is to hit 18% body fat. Well, so on that normal program, I would not have eaten the things that I ate today, but Mm -hmm. I'm not upset by the things I ate today because they had to help. I had to eat them to meet today's goal, right? Today's goal. You know, I had to get a little more fat in early in the morning. I had to get a little more protein in early in the morning, had to bump up the MCT oil so we can fuel the brain. You know, there are things that are going to help me achieve today what I need Mm -hmm. to achieve they are a little bit not, you know, helpful to the long-term goal, but that's okay. You got to, right. you have to figure out the balance and meeting them all. Exactly. And so then when podcasts over, I go back to doing what I was doing to meet the big goal. And no, no, no regrets, no guilt, nothing. No. You just move no. on as if nothing had ever happened. Exactly. Well, Mm -hmm. because something awesome happened. I did a podcast, you know, and and Mm -hmm. so, you know, and whether it's I did a podcast or I was able to handle my six kids today or I was able to get them all to soccer practice or, you know, whatever it might be, pat yourself on the back. You achieve that goal. Now go on to the next one. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, Well, we're almost out of time and I just wanted to recap on what we talked about briefly. Um, You know, you shared your story of the disordered eating patterns, the behaviors that, you know, got you up into your maximum weight numbers. Um, and, And even though, you know, you became very, very conscious of them, and even though it took some, you know, they didn't go away, they're still there, but it's something that you've become aware of enough to be able to, I don't know, work to your advantage, would you say? Oh, yeah, definitely work. I I have to use everything to my advantage. Even Mm -hmm. all your setbacks, got to use everything to your advantage. It's all going to make you a better person. I think that's smart. Right. We learn from the mistakes. We learn from the things that don't work. And and that's what I, you know, we we always talk about. There's always going to be some level of experimentation and trial and error. And it's, it's to take any win or loss as a learning tool. 
to know what to do in the future. It's the only way. Absolutely. Well, I I'm, love I love being a student. I love being <laughs> a student. I'm a student every day. So that's just how I live my life. I feel the same way. And I and I love <laughs> learning from each new client and being able to share things that I've learned from you, say, and be able to help, you know, share that with another client and help them along the way because maybe they're going through something similar. It, exactly. it really makes a know, difference. Other than this podcast, um, I've actually started to share some of my little bits and pieces of my story um, on my Facebook page. And uh, it's, I don't know, Facebook, whatever Facebook is. And then we'll it fully fueled fit. Yeah, fully fueled fitness is where I'm sharing most of those stories, not uh, on my business page as opposed to my personal page. Um, just those little snippets of information and what I learned from them. Mm-hmm. So that's a good place to find out more about my story. I love it. Thank you so much for joining us again. And um, we are planning on having one more episode where Carrie joins. And we're going to talk a little bit more about exercise and goal setting within that. And um, it should be a lot of fun because that's been a whole new adventure <laughs> on the other end yes. of the on the other end of the uh, the goal setting. So thank you again, Carrie, for joining me today. Um, pleasure having you on. And, and I'm really, really happy that you've opened up so much to share your story because it's important. Thank you. I had a, had a great time. Thanks for asking me. Great. Of course. Of course. Well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Her Body. We will see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Her Body IOFM with your hosts, Alex Navarro and Andrea Jengel. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more information about women's health and performance. <laughs>